that's the Lamb of God. Let's take our seats. As they're finding their seats, you can turn to Luke chapter 24. I just want to highlight some passages in this gospel, and I'm going to be looking at many passages this morning, some of which I'll put on the screen. But if you notice in the Word of God, in verse number 27, of Luke chapter 24, it says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. And then over to verse 44 of that same chapter, it says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Now, from that passage of scriptures, those those several passages, there's something very important that you need to consider, is that when the Lord says, law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's talking about the whole Old Testament, not just a few places. And in the whole Old Testament, there was the message that the Messiah would suffer, rise again from the dead the third day, and of course, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in the name, his name, to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So from that passage of Scripture and from what the Lord said, he's talking about explaining all these things from the Old Testament. Now we have the New Testament that it further explains those things. The centrality of the gospel is the death of Christ, the most Glorious aspect of the gospel message is justification by faith. But the most incredible thing about the gospel message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The raising of Christ from the dead is, the pivot, is pivotal, pivotal upon that which all the evidence of Christianity turns. By his resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth is proven to be all that he claimed to be, that he accomplished all he undertook, that his work is complete, and that his sacrifice is accepted. But if Christ had not risen from the dead, his death upon the cross, rather than being a ground of our everlasting salvation, would have been the occasion of our despair. If death had been able to keep him, sin would not have been conquered. Therefore, the resurrection is the very foundation of the church. Everything hinges upon it, and without it, all else would be in vain, would be empty, and would be meaningless. So this Lord's Day, let's consider some of the reasons why Jesus had to rise from the grave. There are many of them. I'm going to kind of highlight nine of them. Now, if you notice from those passages of Scripture that Jesus explained his suffering, his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the Scriptures, from the Word of God. And so we're going to look at nine of them. Some I'll spend some time on, others I'll just mention. Let's pray, though. Lord, this morning as we look upon your word, I pray that the word of God would be engrafted in our heart. 
I pray, Lord, that you would impress the truths of Scripture upon our souls, upon our wills, upon our minds. So, Lord, that it would grab hold of us like you did in the Word of God. You opened their minds to understand the Scripture. Do that for us, Lord. So it would take hold of us and show us the only way that a person, a man, a woman, a child can be made right with God through Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, give us the will to live for you all of our days. And I pray this this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So the first reason that I have why Jesus had to rise from the dead is this, because it was foretold by the prophets of the Old Testament, typified by Noah's departure from the ark alive typified by Daniel's coming out of the lion's den alive, typified by the dismissing of the scapegoat into the wilderness alive, typified by Isaac's deliverance from death on the third day alive, and typified by Jonah's coming out of the belly of the great fish on the third day alive. In fact, even Matthew's gospel mentions for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great sea monster. So was the Son of Man to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then we know that Jonah was spewed out upon the shore alive. So because Christ had been raised from the dead proves we have a true and sure word of prophecy from the word of God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, in Mark chapter 12, verse number 26, the word of God says, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, verse 27, he is not the God of the dead but of the living. And then he says to the people he's speaking to, you are greatly mistaken because they thought something other than what the resurrection should be. And they tried to trip Jesus up. But if you notice there, the quote what Moses wrote about, about what God said to him, it comes from the Old Testament. A second reason why Jesus had to rise from the grave is because Jesus said that he would rise from the grave. Now, again, the passage of Scripture that is pointed and uh, one that we can understand is from John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, where it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This is the commandment I received from my Father. And in the Gospel of Mark also it says, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead to Galilee. See, Jesus simply said that he would be raised from the dead, and he was So because Christ has been raised from the dead, proves Jesus' life and words are sure and true. A third reason that Jesus had to rise from the grave is in order to show that the justice of the Father was satisfied. And this is one that some people may have missed, is that the justice of the Father, because he is righteous, had to be satisfied by someone in order for us to be saved. And so the, gospel, uh, the book of Romans in chapter 3, verse 26, gives us a sense of it where it says there, for the, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Christ's sacrifice on the cross met all the claims of God's justice. Without his death, 
our salvation would be absolutely impossible. Well, let me just think about that for a minute. Just the necessity of justice. Maybe we don't think about it so much, but if you remember your philosophy classes, if you had philosophy, right, and you had to go through all these philosophers on what they said about the unmoved mover and about what they thought about God and the existence of man and life and death and all those things, well, the philosopher Immanuel Kant had some interesting things to say when he approached this question of life beyond the grave. He observed that all humans have some concern for right and wrong, some sense of moral duty. Then he asked, he asked what would be necessary for that innate sense of duty to make any sense at all? He answered his own question by reasoning that for a sense of duty to be meaningful, there must be justice. There has to be. For why do right at all if justice does not prevail? Kant noticed, however, that justice does not always prevail in this world. A little bit of a confusing thought. Too often, he said, those who seek good suffer, and those who are wicked prosper. His practical reasoning continued by concluding that since justice does not prevail in this life, there must be another time and place where it will. In other words, he reasoned that justice demands life beyond the grave. We know that all injustices are not taken care of in this world. Some people get out from under the law. Some people are never caught. And they think because they're never caught, there will never be any justice. And that is completely not true. Why? Because God is just. See, the reason why they think they got away with it is because they don't think there's a God. And they don't think God's going to do anything about it. See, they think they simply are going to be passed over. But maybe they forgot a passage like this in Hebrews 9, 27, where it says, as, in, as much as it is appointed for men to die once and after, this comes judgment. The rest of that passage of Scripture says, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So Kant, Immanuel Kant, carried his logic one step further and reasoned that for justice to truly prevail, there must be a perfect judge, one who must know all things and have all the evidence. He must also have all the power to ensure that the verdict for reward or punishment is properly carried out. Thus, Kant, his practical ethics he said, requires life after death and a judge whose description sounds very much like the God of Christianity as described in the Bible. Now, whether Kant actually believed in Jesus Christ, I don't know. It seems like the philosophers never really concluded. If you ever read the philosophers, they're so frustrating. Like, conclude the matter already. Is it yes or no? It's never. They never conclude. So they had their time to figure out through thinking and intellect and logic and reason, and they never concluded correctly. See, the only way you can conclude correctly is come to the Scriptures. The Scriptures can only bring you to the place where no philosopher has brought us. So every sinner will be brought before the judge. Jesus Christ, who before hand came as Savior offering salvation from 
the condemnation of sin, someday all the wicked will bow their knee before God, confess their sins to him, and confess that Christ is Lord. If God cannot be glorified in the salvation of sinners by their surrender to him, he will be glorified in their damnation. God will get the glory. But see, God tells us that on the cross, Christ bore our sin. He endured our punishment, laying down his life as a sacrifice so that justice would be satisfied and we may receive mercy. In fact, how do we know justice was satisfied? Because Jesus rose from the grave. That's how we know. God accepted his sacrifice. In fact, that's what it tells us in, in Romans chapter 1, verse number 4, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So that means because Christ has been raised from the dead, it proves the Father's justice has been forever fulfilled and satisfied. The sacrifice of Jesus was accepted by the Father so that Jesus could be declared the just and the justifier from the Romans passage that I read. Here's a fourth reason why Jesus had to die, because it proved that Jesus was the Son of God. Again, if we go back to the Word of God, we find that in Psalm chapter, or actually the Acts chapter 13, verse 33, which is a quote from Psalm chapter 2, where the Bible tells us this, that God has fulfilled his promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay from the book of Psalms. Again, Jesus was walking with his disciples, telling them the passages of Scripture that they were very familiar with, all pointing to his death, burial, and resurrection. So because Christ has been raised from the dead proves that Jesus is more than a man. He is God. And a fifth reason, because it displayed the power of the Godhead. I want you to take your Bibles and let's, let's, let's look at a few passages of Scripture. Here they are. The first one is Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Because who exactly raised Jesus from the dead? Well, God the Father raised him from the dead. God the Son raised him himself from the dead. And the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, all recorded in Scripture. In other words, the Godhead raised Jesus from the dead, in Acts chapter 24, or Acts chapter 2, verse 24, it says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. And then also in John chapter 2, verse number 19, God the Son raised himself from the dead. Now, if you notice what it says there in Chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But in verse 21, it says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So verse 22 says, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. So the son raised himself. The father raised him, but the Holy Spirit of God also raised Jesus in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 11, very clear passage of scripture where it says this, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So because Christ has been raised from the dead proves that our God is one of indescribable power. 
that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of God were all involved in the raising of Christ from the dead. And then the sixth reason for Christ rising from the dead is because it was necessary, number one, to fill Scripture, to fulfill Scripture. It says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 3 and 4, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. And he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, according to the Scripture. So the importance of the Bible is stressed in the passage for the Apostle Paul said, according to the Scripture, this referring to the Old Testament uh, of his death and resurrection, that Jesus died for our sins, that it was a real bodily sacrifice, that he was buried, that he had a real bodily burial, and that he was raised on the third day, meaning that there was a real bodily resurrection. Acts chapter 2, verse 24 says, and God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So because Christ has been raised from the dead, proves scripture is true, completely trustworthy and accurate. Of course, also Christ, it was uh, necessary because we couldn't be forgiven of our sins if Christ did not raise from the grave, like Corinthians 15 tells us. So Christ, Christians no longer, are no longer in their sins. Christians do not die in their sins. Christians die in the Lord. This means they have been cleansed and forgiven of all their sins because of the complete and finished work of Christ. So because Christ has been raised from the dead, we have been forgiven, and we will, because of that, rise again. The thing that's kept us out of the presence of God, our sin has been removed and forgiven and taken care of and washed away. Also, it's necessary for our justification. I've already mentioned that, that Christ had been raised from the dead so we can be justified, declare right before God, declared saved before God. And of course, it's also for the Christian's hope. It's necessary for our hope. Nobody has hope today, but a Christian should have hope. Christians now are living as a people that do not have to be miserable because they have no future. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. It is not the vile of the vile, nor the lowest of the low, or the poorest of the poor that should be pitied from that passage, but Christians should be most pitied if Christ did not rise from the grave, but he did. So if he didn't rise, what's the best life can give us from 1 Corinthians 15, 32? Well, from human motives, it says, I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus, Paul says. What does it profit me? Would any hard thing I've ever gone through in life if Christ is not raised from the dead? He says, if he's not, go ahead and eat, go drink, Go be merry, for tomorrow all that we do is die like a, an animal. But we don't. We don't have to be pitied. We don't have to be miserable because Christ has been raised from the dead. So we have a sure hope in Jesus Christ. And then the next thing is this. The seventh thing is because the resurrection showed that Jesus obtained victory over death, the tight grip of sin, and Satan's power, and death's sting. So death comes to all alike. It plays no favorites. Being righteous or religious does not exempt anyone from death. Death is an intruder. It doesn't fit into the scheme of human existence. It's as Paul said in Romans, therefore just as 
Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So death spread to all men. Why did that happen? Because all are begat in sin and will sin. So sins are the cause that people are alienated from God. Well, the resurrection of Jesus changed all that, meaning because there is a resurrection, then the victory is ours in Christ Jesus. And that's what it says in this passage of Scripture in Corinthians. It says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, so Christ has dealt with the root infection that all of us had. Death has had its deadly sting precisely because of sin and the law. Through his death on the cross, sin is paid for. The law demands are satisfied. Death is abolished. And it says also in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he he will swallow up death for all time. Here's another prophet telling of what would partake in the life of Christ, the Messiah. So by Christ's death and resurrection, already the sting of death has been removed. And this sting is not some mild irritant, but is like a scorpion's sting that results in death. Christ has drawn out the poison by drawing out the poison into himself. Jesus Christ has destroyed him who has the power of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So death can already be mocked by us here and now as a defeated enemy. In in other words, death has lost its poisonous fangs. And why? Because Christ has been raised from the dead, proves that all our enemies have been completely and forever defeated. There's an eighth reason why Christ had a raise from the grave. And this has to do more for the believers. All of them have to do with believers. But the very fact that we can't even live our Christian life unless Christ rose from the grave. So the eighth one is so that believers can have power to live the Christian life. Paul dealt with this in the book of Ephesians. It is the basis of resurrection life in Christ for the believer that they can live right now and right here for Christ. See, God is is not doing something toward everyone. He is doing it toward us who believe. And towards us who believe, what's happening? The resurrection power of Christ is in us. See, you and I used to be in spiritual darkness dead in trespasses and sin, but now our hearts are being flooded with light so that we can understand. And the prayer request that Paul offers up in the book of Ephesians is that your eyes may be open more and more to spiritual knowledge and that you would understand what God has done and you would understand your new identity in Christ Jesus. So, in the passage of Scripture in Ephesians, it says this, that these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, where it says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, what is he talking about in that passage of Scripture? He is simply saying to all those who are believers that, listen, God gives you resurrection power to live your Christian life. Without it, you cannot live it. So what a display of power the resurrection of Christ was. 
when all the forces of evil and hell, when death and the grave were trying to hold him, he was raised by the mighty power of God. Death could not hold him. He rose triumphant over the grave. So God's power is life-giving, and his power is put to use towards us in several ways. The first way is this, the believers are made alive. It says in Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in transgressions, in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, the very fact that you and I are believers, if you are today, it's solely because of the demonstration of God's might. Many things had to be overcome and conquered by the strength of God in order for you and for me to be a believer. The flesh had to be overcome. The world system had to be overcome. Satan's power had to be overcome. All those things had to be overcome. In fact, God had to make us alive to overcome that. And then also, a second thing is that believers have the power working in them now. If it were not for the power of God working in believers, we would have no desire to read the word of God. We would have no desire to pray or the strength to put off sin and put on righteousness or be strong in the Lord and in the spiritual battle and so on and so forth. And that's why some people who make professions of faith in Christ don't really live for Christ. You know why? They have no power in them to do so. They just think it's something that you either you believe or you don't believe, and you have that choice to do it, which you do in many respects. But the thing is, is that people make choices all the time on whether they should follow Christ or not follow Christ. But the bottom line is this. If someone is not truly born again and has the Spirit of God living in them, they cannot live the Christian life. No matter how much they read, no matter how much they want to, they can't. Only those who know Christ. So the apostle Paul is not praying that believers see that, they're, that they need this power, nor is he praying in Ephesians that believers have more power. He is praying that believers would realize the greatness of the power of God that is already working in them. See, that is one of the keys that Paul was getting at. In this passage of Scripture, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. That is the key to the Christian life. The Spirit of God working in us, taking the Word of God, transforming our minds and our hearts to give us the desire to serve Christ, but also to give us the affection to love Christ. See, that's the key to living a faithful Christian life. You learn to love Christ in every aspect of your life. In Philippians, it says this, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we too often think of the Christian life solely in terms of knowing that we are forgiven, and then we tend to live the Christian life the best we can. This is altogether incorrect thinking, because it is impossible to live the Christian life in our own strength. You see, by nature, not one of us would or could believe the gospel. Nothing but the power of God can make us believers. But it is also this self-same power that we continue in the Christian life. We continue by God having a hold on us, God keeping us, God not letting us go. And he doesn't let us go because he sealed us into the day of redemption, and he seals us by the Spirit of God. So God is taking us to the end of the race that we're in as Christians. So believers are being urged in this passage to depend upon this power and to realize this inexhaustible source of strength. And he, so he goes on and he prays that we may be fully, may appropriate, appropriate personally, and we may learn in experience the 
measureless might, the exceeding greatness of the power which God is exerting towards us who believe, and he's exerting that in us by his Spirit. So because Christ has been raised from the dead, gives believers the power to persevere in the Christian life right to the end. And then that brings me to my last one this morning. But it is not the last one in Scripture. It's just that the the only ones I have time for this morning. I could have said uh, there's 50 reasons why Jesus rose from the grave, but you would never get home for lunch. So here's the ninth one, the last one this morning. Because the resurrection changes everything for everyone, even for those who do not obey the gospel. Now, the resurrection is the pointer to the day when God will wind up all human history and will call all humankind to account. And of course, it's this Acts chapter 17 passage where it says, because he, was, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men What's the proof? By raising him from the dead. See, by Christ's death and resurrection, believers already have a hope for a bright future. Everyone will have eternal life. Everyone. See, the scriptures make a clear distinction, however, in the kind of eternal life one enters into. One is eternal life, And one is, as Daniel says, the prophet Daniel, eternal damnation. There's no in-between. Sorry, there's no purgatory. Uh, There's nowhere else to go. All right? When you die, there's going to be a judgment. If you trusted in Christ, you will have eternal life. If you did not trust in Christ for whatever reason, there will be eternal damnation. See, the resurrection will bring one either to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment, but everyone will be raised. So, what is it that determines destiny? Well, let me, let me just throw out some things that do not determine, determine destiny. Here's the first one. Character does not determine destiny. See, good character is certainly something that cannot be discounted, but good character cannot save. Morality cannot save. Salvation by character would be, actually would demand a perfect character without a single fault and and unmarred by even a single sin. No one can measure up to that standard. Therefore, No one can be saved by character, by a system of morality, a system of do's and don'ts. They can't be saved by that. Also, good works does not determine destiny. No matter how much good a person may do, his good works cannot save him. Sometimes a person, when asked, If he's a Christian, we'll reply, I'm doing the best I can. Two things may be said about that response. First, it isn't true. No person can do the best they can. And secondly, no person's best is good enough. It would take perfection, and none of us have that. Salvation is not something that can be earned So however important good works may be, they cannot save a person from his sins. Also, church membership does not determine destiny. Some people, not many, who are not church members are are saved on the road to heaven. Many who are members of some church are lost and are on the road to hell. Oh yes, church membership has an important place in God's word, but it is not the passport to heaven. If you say, well, I, here's my baptism certificate and here's my church membership certificate, and I've been going to church my whole life. I was born in church. 
that does not guarantee a passport to heaven. So then what is it that determines destiny? Well, one's attitude towards sin and towards Christ. You heard of the story of the two men who were crucified with Christ, one on his left and one on his right. One of these men were saved, and the other was lost. Now, why? Not because one of them was a good man and the other was a bad man. They were both bad. In fact, the Scriptures tell us in Luke chapter 23, verse 39, they were criminals. They were robbers, and perhaps they were even murderers. Yet one was saved, and the other was lost. Why? Because in that hour on the cross, one saw his past life with all its sin, and his heart was broken over his sin. And he said this in Luke 23, verse 41, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. So he realized there on the cross, looking at Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ had saving power. Christ, who was dying on the other cross, what did he do? He lifted up his voice and he cried, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? He said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today. He was saved, if we can conclude that story, he was saved because he repented of his sin. Now, could he, get, could he have gotten off the cross and said, let me go do a bunch of good works first? Could he have gotten off the cross and went to claim anything for his own part in salvation? No. He could do nothing except one thing, and that's what he did. He was saved because he repented of his sins, and he put his trust in Jesus Christ. Obviously, on that cross, he knew something about what was going on that day in Jerusalem that Jesus Christ was the, was the word. He was the news of the day. He was on the front page of all the papers. The Jerusalem Times, it was about Jesus Christ. Couldn't avoid it. He knew about what was going on. But there was another man on the other side that was crucified. The other man was lost because in the same hour, he looked back on his life of sin and he felt no need to repent. He looked into the same face of Jesus Christ, and instead of trusting him, what does he say? In Luke 23, 39, he says this. He was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In a mocking way, he was doing that. So we may say then that a person is saved because he or she repents of their sins and puts their trust in Jesus Christ alone. And a person is lost because he or she refuses to repent of his or her sins and turns away from Jesus Christ and rejects him as Lord and Savior. That's the bottom line right there. That's the message of the gospel. So that means before everyone, there is two huge, hugely different eternal destinies. The destiny of disgrace and everlasting contempt. That is the unbelievers will have great shame and disgrace before the Lord. Then they will realize the gravity of their sin of rejecting God's loving sacrifice. And then there is the destiny of renewal and everlasting life. This is for believers See, God will complete, will complete the victory in the physical and the spiritual realms and bring all his children to live with him in glory. So because Christ has been raised from the dead proves that Jesus 
has been given authority to judge the living and the dead and to bring all things under his rightful authority. And that's what he's going to do. He's not done with his program yet. It will happen. And that all that Jesus received, he's going to turn around and give it all back to the Father. And then everything will be come together. It will come full circle, and God will conclude his program. So this Lord's Day, this day we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray and I, I hope that you will believe the truth and trust in Christ as your own Lord and Savior and enter into eternal life. If you have done that already, then you have a, a great foundation to praise the Lord about. And you have a bright and great future to live for the Lord with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. A Christian is a person who has repented of their sins and have, has turned to the Father's only solution for their sin problem, and that is Jesus Christ. So what do they do? They confess Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And you know this passage of Scripture, the one that people always use. This is a great passage of Scripture. Look what it says. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, why is it important to believe that God raised him from the dead? Well, it's important because the resurrection is the culmination. It's the crowning point of all God has that all that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. In other words, if there is no resurrection, there is no salvation. But there has been a resurrection. So my friend, will you be with him forever? Resurrection is promised to all human beings. The just will be raised to glorification, and the unjust will be raised to eternal conscious separation from the presence of God. Do you have in your heart that blessed assurance that you are on your way to heaven? Do you know for sure if you died right now where you would go? If it was today, where would you go? you know that your sins have been washed away and forgiven? Which side of the cross are you on? Are you on the side of the saved man or the unsaved man? Because there's no other side to be on. You have to be on one or the other. Now, if you do not believe, then there is a reason why. And this is the reason, because you're still trusting yourself. You're trusting something you have done, some goodness or merit of your own, that there is some morality or goodness in you that will earn your passage to heaven. You're hoping somehow that when you get to heaven, the Lord has some divine scales and you're good is going to outweigh your bad. But that's not what it teaches in Scripture. All who trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation and repent of their sin to follow him are given the free gift of eternal life, paid for with an infinite price by the one who died, shed his blood in your stead, and who promises that having risen from the dead he will take you to be with him forever in paradise. And while you await his return or your departure from this earth, he will give you the power to live the Christian life so that the direction of your life will be that of increasing holiness, which includes grow, a growing understanding of the truth and a deeper more abiding and more consistent affection for Jesus Christ. That's where the Lord's bringing us. So you see from the beginning to the end, all Scripture has been speaking about 
has been Jesus Christ, that he had to suffer, that he had to die, that he had to rise from the dead. And in doing this, Jesus finished everything necessary to provide salvation to any lost sinner who comes to ask Jesus to save them. Whoever may come, may come. And I say, come with all your baggage. Come with all your sin. Come with all your misery. Come with everything you have because you can't clean anything up. And let him do it. And he'll do it. And he'll save you. Because anybody who comes into Jesus, into Jesus Christ, he will in no wise cast out. That's the promise. So Moses, the law, the Psalms, pastor teachers, and all Christians have the same message that we're proclaiming to the world. That the only way to be right with God is to come through Jesus Christ, the Son. Right? That's the message. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we wouldn't even be here. There's no reason for us to be here. But he did. So there is a reason for us to be here, and there's a reason when we walk out those doors to go out into the world and live for him, and to live for him every day, every week, every month, every year until God takes us out of here. And believe me, that will be a life that is worth living. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I thank you for the word of God. Lord, it is a word that is eternal. It is a word that accomplishes everything it sets out to accomplish. And Lord, all your promises contained in Scripture are faithful and true. And I thank you, Lord, that I can come today as a pastor and preach and stand on the authority of the word of God knowing that this is the truth. And if we know the truth, is the truth that will set us free. So I pray this morning, do your work, Lord, in your people's hearts. And I pray as you do that, you would bring those who desire to come, to come. Grant them faith and repentance. And for those who already know you, Lord, Give them, show them they already have the power to live the Christian life and help them every day to depend on the power of Christ and his word to live a life that is worthy and honoring to you. And I pray this this morning in the great and awesome name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.